Good afternoon, colleagues. Uh, it's Dr. Richard McCallum, editor of the Journal of Investigative Medicine. And as is our monthly habit, we conduct a podcast to the AFMR members, as well as other colleagues in the country. And we invite an expert to address a topic that we believe uh, will be of great benefit to our membership. Um, as a background, uh, why did we choose this month's topic? Well, Karina Espino, my trusted editorial assistant and co-moderator of the podcast, uh, informs me about each month's sort of highlights, you know, colon cancer month, diabetes month. This month is actually on thyroid disease. And so it was a bit of a no-brainer for me because I have a great expert here at, at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, Dr. Tamis Bright. And she was very glad to join me on this podcast today. And uh, we're going to discuss the thyroid. Before we get to that, let me just briefly introduce Tamis to you. Um, she comes from that uh, world of Hanover, the big green Dartmouth College. Uh, where she studied after attending Exeter Academy, did medical school at uh, Loyola in uh, Chicago, uh, going on to an internship in San Antonio, Texas, followed by completion of intern of residency and then completion of a fellowship in endocrinology at the University of Colorado. I guess that was before it moved to the new location there on the Air Force Base um, in Denver. Tamis then came, fortunately for us, directly to Texas Tech and um, assumed the role of Division Director of Endocrinology and Metabolism. Um, soon after that also became the Associate Program Director for our internal medicine residency, which he's done a stellar job at, at that for over 20 years. She retains and remains the division head of endocrinology and that's how I met her when I came here myself in 2009. Tamas was our right-hand person, if you like, in the world of um, diabetes and gastroparesis and some of the GI motility uh, areas of research that I work on. And I got to know her very well for other expertise in all areas of endocrinology. Um, Tamas continues to be active in both um, abstracts and in publications. She's an associate professor of medicine here in the department and um, continues to um, um, be a major teacher for our medical students and residents. So it's a pleasure for me, Tamas, to welcome you and thank you for joining us on this podcast. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm really happy to uh, be part of Thi Thyroid Month, and hopefully we can impart some information for the listeners and uh, spread the word about things about the thyroid for you. Thank you very much. It's um, Although we don't, we don't need to know this, uh, um, her husband uh, actually is very glad to take out some thyroids now and again. Um, as referred to. So one of the reasons one might get involved with resections or surgeries uh, could be the mysteries of the thyroid nodule, Tamis. Why don't I throw that little challenge your way first of all, and you can perhaps give us your view on uh, 
how an internist um, and others would view a thyroid nodule and how we can evaluate it. I think that's a, a good topic for everyone because we do so many x-rays that uh, include the thyroid. So it isn't just the internists and the family practice stocks that see these, it's everybody since every chest CT that we do, or if you're doing a carotid Doppler, the thyroid is, is in, the, in the image and then you know whatever it was that you were looking for. Oh, by the way, the radiologist is reading that you have this two centimeter nodule or a five millimeter nodule or, you know, in, endless nodules that show up. And then you're stuck with, well, what am I supposed to do with that? And this is one of the, the frequent questions that we get and the frequent consults that we get because so many people do have nodules. And, you know, if you're looking at an older population, you probably have at least 10% of them are going to show up with incidental omas, whether, whether you could palpate it or not. Many of them are quite small. And then you need to know, well, what am I going to do with this thing? So uh, the, the, the first approach pretty much with all thyroid disease is we live off our labs. So what is the TSH? And we want that TSH first to know is the patient has some other functional abnormality as well as a structural one with the, with the nodules. So um, we check that TSH and see, you know, is that patient potentially hyperthyroid because that totally changes the, uh, the management that we're going to do. Because when you have a nodule, your concern obviously is, is do you have thyroid cancer? And Thyroid cancers are never functional in that they make thyroid hormones. So if you have someone that's hyperthyroid, now it's still possible it could be a thyroid cancer, but you need to know where is that hyperthyroid coming from? So in that case, you're going to have to do a thyroid scan and see, is that what we call a hot nodule or a functional nodule? And at that point, you know it's not cancer. So you still have to deal with that hot nodule and treat the hypothyroidism, whether you're going to use radioactive iodine or you could use a uh, uh, thyroid blocking medication like methimazole. But you, you know at least it's not, uh, not cancer. And one of the mistakes that we see is that people try to biopsy these hot nodules. And you can biopsy it but you already knew that it wasn't thyroid cancer. So there's no indication whatsoever with that uh, hot nodule to do a biopsy. And indeed what happens, and one of the, our big concerns is when people do these biopsies, you put the pathologist in a very difficult situation because a hot nodule by definition is active. So if you're going to biopsy an active tissue, it's going to have active nucleoli. It's going to look like an active tissue. It frequently will have mitotic figures. So when your pathologist is looking at that, he's going to say, okay, I have this active tissue. I have these uh, mitotic figures. He's gonna have to read it based off his criteria that that potentially is a suspicious lesion for cancer. And we know from epidemiology that it wasn't possibly a cancer to start with. So now we have a path report that says it's suspicious. The patient has that and now I go, we'll take it out. So now we end up with patients that potentially end up with an inappropriate surgery because you ended up doing a nodule that you really uh, didn't need that biopsy on in the first place. So, so I think the most important thing to start with nodules is don't biopsy anything that comes out on a thyroid scan that's a hot nodule. It needs treatment for the hyperthyroidism, but it does not need a not need a biopsy of that nodule. All the rest of them, though, 
potentially may need a, need a biopsy. So if you have a patient that has a normal TSH or even a hypothyroid patient, now you need to potentially biopsy that nodule. And we do them under ultrasounds now. I mean, for many, many years, we obviously just grabbed a needle and uh, stuck it in there. But now that we have uh, fantastic bedside ultrasound machines, you can look at that nodule. You can really get a good assessment of it uh, and decide, is this something that I need to biopsy? In most cases, if it's over a centimeter, we would consider biopsying it. If it's cystic, and many people do have cysts in their thyroid, if it's a pure, just you know, round bag full of water, that is a benign lesion and does not need a biopsy. But if it is any type of a mixed cystic or solid, then we would uh, biopsy it if it's over a centimeter. And what we see frequently is because of all the x-rays, we have these people that have a two millimeter or three millimeter nodule. Those are incredibly common. Even if it's a thyroid cancer and it's two or three millimeters, they've been shown to be very benign behavior of them. There's no reason to be biopsying these things that are just a few millimeters. So it's important to wait until the thing is a reasonable size in order to start biopsying things. Um, you know, do we occasionally biopsy things smaller if we know people have had uh, familial papillary uh, thyroid cancer or something like that that might push us? But it's, it's very rare that you would do a biopsy of something that's under a centimeter. And depending upon what they look like under the, the ultrasound, some of them are even more uh, likely to be benign and we'll wait until they're about a centimeter and a half. So you need a pretty big nodule before we get concerned about it. So a lot of it's reassuring the patient that this is fine. And, and in most patients, unless there's some suspicious looking things about those nodules, even the bigger ones, 90% of them are benign. So we do a lot of biopsies to find those few thyroid cancers because we can cure that thyroid cancer just by taking out the thyroid in most cases. So we, we look a lot just to find those few that need to have something done about them and reassure the patients a lot about the ones that are uh, potentially just benign lesions. So, so anyway, that, that's kind of the, the right. uh, long-winded answer as to what to do with that thyroid nodule. Right. Uh, but. It is probably one of the most common things that we see that uh, that people need to know what to do with because, you know, a lot of thyroid disease, the primary care docs can take care of, and this one always stymies them as to what, what are they going to do with those nodules. So hopefully that answers it for people. Well, you know, as an internist as well as a gastroenterologist, you know, I always feel the thyroid. Um, sometimes patients say, gee, doctor, my family history is um, very positive for thyroid cancer, or I may stumble into hypothyroidism, and I wonder, gee, should I ever get just an ultrasound on this patient's thyroid? I can't feel any nodules, but we've got the family history, or maybe we've just got a new onset of hypothyroidism. Should we do more sort of ultrasound screening in certain settings? I can't guarantee I'm ever going to feel a nodule sometimes. But the, the current guidelines actually are to do an ultrasound only if you do palpate that nodule. So yes, you should certainly feel that gland. Um, thyroid cancer is actually, I, I think we're 12th at the moment for the, the most common cancers. So it's pretty high up there. Um, and there's somewhere around, I, I think around 50,000 new thyroid cancers a year. 
Now the prevalence is super high because you know thyroid cancer is a pretty indolent cancer as things go. So people live a very long time. So there's a lot of people living in the US with thyroid cancer. Um, but to do an ultrasound, just to do one, we don't recommend that. So if you have somebody that has just a, you know, a diffuse goiter, if it's small and you're, you're can tell that it, you know, it feels just like a diffuse goiter, you don't necessarily have to be ultrasounding those either. Patients who have hypothyroidism, it's not indicated in someone that is just purely hypothyroid either. If you have something though that feels like a nodule, then yes, that's when it's indicated. Many of those actually aren't nodules. So if you have a hypothyroid patient, um, the gland, when you look at it, is very lumpy and bumpy. And when you feel that from the, the outside, obviously, it feels all the world like a nodule. But then when you look at an ultrasound, it's this, what's called a bosselation. So the, the whole surface of it has these areas of hypertrophy because of the, the Hashimoto's that's going on. And you can frequently tell that under the ultrasound. Sometimes we end up biopsying them because some look more like nodules, but most of the time you can tell it, it's just the, the Hashimoto's. But, but definitely uh, I, I would encourage everyone to be, be palpating the thyroid because like I said, depending on how old the patient are, you got one, one out of 10 people may have a nodule in there. Uh, and then the, the risk of thyroid cancer is certainly there. And if we're not palpating that thyroid, then you know no one's ever gonna find these things. And the, the key to all thyroid cancer is find them when they're little so that you can potentially just cure it with a simple thyroidectomy. How about the family history? Does that lower your threshold? It does. So certainly if someone has hypothyroidism, you should be uh, checking that thyroid level frequently. Uh, if, if you've got family history, we recommend that you do it every year. Uh, if you uh, also, if you have other autoimmune diseases, even if you don't have that family history, but if right. you have autoimmune diseases or autoimmune diseases are very common in the family. So a lot of people will have vitiligo, they have lupus, they have uh, rheumatoid arthritis, anything like that. They, they should have a TSH done every year, or obviously if they have symptoms, um, as for when you might do another ultrasound on them, again, it really would be for someone that had nodules in there. Okay. Because what's gonna happen is if you don't, if you can't palpate the nodule and you do ultrasounds, what you're gonna find are these, you know, two, three, four millimeter nodules. And now the patient's gonna have this, you know, fear that, oh no, I have this nodule. What if it's cancer? And you're gonna have to spend the time reassuring them that it's okay, you can have this little nodule, but they, they end up getting more worried about it. Sure. And now you have the well-worried patient and right. add that to their stress and, and everything else when really that re does not change their morbidity or their mortality. So it's, it's better not to look. Um, but it does take some practice to be able to do good thyroid exams and uh, people do miss things. So you should do them, do them frequently. Okay. Make sure you're doing them sitting up. You know, I see in the mm -hmm. hospital, a lot of times the residents will be examining the patient when they're laying flat in the bed. And it's very hard to examine the thyroid when a patient is laying flat because it does fall kind of down and back. So you really can't feel the lower poles of the thyroid and you can be missing relatively large nodules when the, the patient is laying down. So you really do need them sitting up 
Make sure they swallow because the thyroid goes up and down when you swallow. Right. So that you can really feel the, the lower poles at that point, which could have a nodule there. So, so yeah, it does. Uh, we, we do need to be examining them, but the, the, the current thought process is le less is better with the, with the ultrasounds. Okay. Well, let me ask you, obviously, uh, in the middle of all this, you've been talking about hypothyroidism rather than Hashimoto's or other issues. And hypothyroid tends to be a very common problem. Why don't you give us an update on what you think is important for the listeners or for the um, teachers and um, physicians in the audience about your approach to hypothyroidism? So when you have a hypothyroid patient, um, you need to make sure that the thyroid levels stay normal. Uh, if it's someone that you've had for a long time, you, you know they have hypothyroidism. It's just a, a matter of, of monitoring those levels and being you know, aware of the doses that they're taking and keeping them normal. What we do see though from the onset is if you have someone that's a newly diagnosed hypothyroid patient, it's important to figure out, are they really hypothyroid? And I think that's one of the, the biggest mistakes that we see. And we're probably going to end up with a lot of this right now in our, our COVID universe here, because what happens is the phenomenon of euthyroid sick. And when people have illnesses, and particularly something like COVID that, that gets uh, people quite ill, even those that don't end up in the hospital that are just home with the, you know, kind of the bad flu-like symptoms. We see this after the flu every year as well. So if someone is usually sick enough to be home from work, it's enough to cause euthyroid sick. So what happens is initially the, uh, the thyroid levels go down a bit. And as the patient recovers from whatever the illness was, then the thyroid will respond with an increase in TSH to get those levels back up. The levels go down because of all of the cytokines and the inflammatory responses that happen from whatever the illness was. So as I was saying with COVID, you know, obviously we have this whole cytokine storm. We have a lot of this inflammatory stuff going on. So the body realizes that if you have other things that are causing rapid metabolism, fevers, tachycardia, that you don't need all that T3 and T4 around. So the levels go down and you start making much higher levels of reverse T3. So when that happens, uh, eventually those cytokines will fall and then the pituitary realizes that, uh, oh, my levels are low and that TSH transiently goes up. And it can go up out of the normal range. It's usually not that high. It usually is just above the top of normal. So most assays currently run 0.4 to 4. So it'll be 6, 8, something like that. So just a little bit above normal. But if you happen to catch the patient in that time frame, uh, you will think the patient has mild hypothyroidism. And frequently these patients end up getting started on thyroid hormone when they, they really didn't need it. And if you had just waited a few weeks, it'll go away. So whenever you're seeing these relatively modest elevations in a TSH that are less than 10, uh, you really need to be talking to the patient about what, what, what's been going on in the last couple of months of life. Did you, were you sick? Did you have any problems? What was going on? And if there's any question that they had some illness or that TSH is sitting less than 10, don't do anything. Just wait another four to six weeks and repeat it because if it was euthyroid sick, it's gonna go away. 
And then the patient doesn't get put on thyroid hormone that then they get stuck on for life. And we right. all have these people in clinic because uh, there's, there's people that are on 25 to 50 micrograms of levothyroxine and they've been on that same dose for the last 10 years. That's not Hashimoto's. Hashimoto's will eventually destroy the bulk of that gland and the patient is going to be on an appropriate weight-based dose, which should be somewhere around 1.6 times their weight in kilograms. So unless you weigh 80 pounds, you're not going to be on 50 micrograms of thyroid hormone for life. So those patients more than likely got started when they were in a euthyroid sick phase, and then the thyroid will compensate. So if you give 25 to 50 micrograms, the thyroid would go, well, thank you, I won't make so much. And you know it will downregulate the amount that it makes so that you stay euthyroid, but it would be fine if you weren't on the medication. Yeah. But if you have them on it, you need to taper it relatively slowly so that the thyroid has a chance to work. And what I tell them to do is, yeah, they've probably been on this for years, so there's no urgency. They can just not take it one day a week. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, take out another day a week and then another day a week. And, you know, eventually over a couple of months, they've just dropped out uh, all, all the days of the week. And then the thyroid can, you know, each week start making a little bit more. So, so that's the first caveat with, uh, with hypothyroidism yeah. is don't, don't treat it if it's not real. So make sure it's not you thyroid sick. And uh, then, you know, once you start them on a medication, then you, you need to choose uh, your, uh, your, your patients with the, um, if, they, if they can afford the, the brand name thyroid hormone, it would be good. There's less variation in that. Mm -hmm. um, we see a lot of fluctuation in our generic doses so that you have a patient on what looks like a good dose and their TSH is in the normal range and everybody's happy. And the next time you check it, it's, it's too high or too low and nothing changed. So we, we see this frequently with the brands that the quality control that the FDA allows with the, the brands is much better than with the generics. So if the patient can afford a brand name thyroid, it's a good thing. As far as I'm aware, it's the only medication that the FDA does not have the same quality controls on it. So um, everything else I would, uh, you know, tell people, please send people the, the generics because it's so much cheaper for them. But in this case, I, I would say use the brand if you can. Yeah. If the patients can't afford that brand, which, you know, it gets pricey to do these brand name meds if the insurance won't cover them, then write on the prescription, please fill with the same generic company each fill so that they're not, when you go to a, a pharmacy, they get whatever's cheapest for them. So one fill, they may have one brand of a generic because, you know, it's not really a brand, but one company of a generic. And the next time the patient goes, they get a different company's uh, generic. And so it, it causes a lot of fluctuation in the thyroid levels and the patient doesn't feel that well. So, so try to keep consistent with that dose. It takes six weeks to get to a steady state. So if you change a dose, wait six weeks, check the level again. If it's not in the appropriate range, then you can uh, you know, modify it. But then mm -hmm. you've got to wait another six weeks to recheck, uh, recheck those levels. Um, and it, once in a while, we find patients, even though there's a lot of different doses out there, um, they fall between two doses. So you put them on one and then it's too much. So you put them on the next one that's below it, it's too little. 
you can do things like we do with Coumadin and it has a seven day half-life. So it has one of the longest half-lives of any med we give. Mm -hmm. So you can give them six and a half tablets for the week. So one day a week, they take a half a tablet instead of a whole tablet. And you can end up with the dose in between two doses that uh, the companies provide. So, so that's a little uh, you know, tidbit for people out there yeah. that are, are monkeying with the dose and they just can't seem to get it quite right. And the other thing is find out if the patient's eating with it because it does not absorb at all if there's food in the stomach. So those directions about you have to wait 30 to 60 minutes for anything, including your cup of coffee is real. So they need to be consistent about taking it fasting with no meds, nothing but water and wait at least 30 minutes. That's important. So, that, yeah. that, so that'll keep those doses better. Let me move on to what patients always, not always, but many are discussing synthetic thyroid hormones versus natural products, doctor. Uh, where do we stand with that these days? Well, if you ask any endocrinologist, um, it, the natural products are not natural. Uh, you know, they, they're actually ground up pig thyroid. So they come from pork and they take a, a pig thyroid and uh, grind it up, desiccate it and lyophilize it into a, uh, a powder. Um, the problem is that animal thyroids have much more T3 in them than what we use. So the naturopaths and the patients love them. They think they're wonderful because when you take it, you're getting a big dose of liothyronine, the T3, which is the active form of the hormone. So it's like drinking a jolt cola every morning and people are like, oh, I feel great. And they're all revved up and isn't this wonderful. And this is a great thing. But the problem is that uh, it runs those T3 levels much too high and when that happens, you're running the risk of having atrial fibrillation, uh, as well as most people that uh, have thyroid hormone are, that need thyroid hormone, most of the time are, are a little older. Uh, and the problem is a lot of them are women, you know, thyroid disease and all autoimmune diseases are more common in women. And they may have osteopenia or at risk for osteopenia or already have osteoporosis. And when you make them hyperthyroid, you're getting a lot more bone loss. So it's not a good thing to do to have those, uh, those natural hormones, even though you know people feel good. It's kind of like the whole steroid thing. People always feel great on steroids. Yeah. But you know, there's obviously lots of downsides to steroids. It's the same thing when you're taking these natural hormones. The other thing is if you have a young woman who's uh, using these natural hormones, um, T3 does not cross the placenta. And if you have a hypothyroid patient that gets pregnant, we are always super worried about that fetus for that first 10 weeks or so when the, the baby doesn't have a thyroid because they're living off mom's thyroid hormone. So it's incredibly important to tell all your hypothyroid uh, young ladies that you know, if they're planning a pregnancy or they get pregnant and weren't planning it to let whoever's managing that thyroid know ASAP because we need a thyroid level right then. Because by the time the, uh, the patient knows they're pregnant, you know, they're usually a month pregnant already. And if they're hypothyroid, this is where cretinism comes from. So if that baby does not have enough thyroid in those very first few weeks, 
then they don't have appropriate neural development and they can potentially have a lower IQ and other uh, neurological issues. So it's incredibly important to keep that thyroid level perfect during pregnancy. In all pregnancies, the TSH runs a little low and the free T4 a little bit high. So usually we're increasing that dose right off the bat as soon as we know they're, they're pregnant, depending upon what those levels look like. And if those ladies are taking this natural hormone, that T3 won't cross the placenta. So the kid is not getting enough thyroid hormones. So it's, it's just not a good idea in the young ladies as well as the old ladies. So we just don't use it ever. Sometimes okay. if people really feel poorly, if we really think they might need some T3, once in a great while, we can add T3, but you can use it separately. And mm -hmm. it comes as a separate tablet. We know exactly what the dose is. Unlike the natural ones from batch to batch, they're, they're very different. So you might have a batch has a lot of T3, the next batch has more T4 in it. And you know, the consistency is just not there with these animal ones because it depends upon what your, what your pig had, you know? So, um, so yeah, if we need to, we can add a little tiny five micrograms of uh, liothyronine just as a separate tablet in addition to the T4. And then we can, you know, we can manipulate that and keep those levels normal. So it's all about keeping that TSH and the T4 in the normal range for people. So I have patients who are GI who have hypothyroidism and they were so constipated and they were also overweight. So is it ever tempting to tweak up the thyroid level a tad more to give them a little benefit about weight loss, get a little break on losing weight to help them uh, sort of get a, get a start, get a jump start. Do you ever play with the thyroid that way? We certainly do. And you know how we were talking about, you can add, add or subtract those half tablets a week. Yeah. If you have someone that's within the normal range and, but you know, say their TSH is three and a half. There's no reason you couldn't try to move that down to like one. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that extra half a tablet a week would do that for you. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to make them hyperthyroid because now we're back to the same problem like the natural hormone where the patient ends up frequently hyperthyroid and now you've caused more harm than good. But yeah. if you have someone that's sitting there at the, you know, the free T4 is at the low end, the TSH is at the high end. And you can play with it a little bit and keep them more toward the, uh, the lower end of the TSH for the, for the, you know, as the lower end of normal, then I certainly think yeah. that might help the patient a little bit. Um, right. We do see people using it for weight loss and that's just a no, no. So you don't, you don't want to do that. And right. we have that happening, you know, for the listeners, we're on the border of, of Mexico and El Paso. So we certainly have uh, places in uh, Juarez in Mexico that uh, will give out thyroid hormone for weight loss and frequently not tell the patient that's what they're on. Yeah. And they end up in our clinics hyperthyroid and then we track back and find out it's being used as a weight loss agent and it, it causes a lot of problems for them. Let me ask you a question that comes now all the time from the lab people. You know, what the biotin component is of these lab tests, what, uh, what role they're playing and what, what do we need to know about biotin and thyroid disease? I have not ordered so many free T4s in my life until the last few years because of biotin. Normally we rely upon our TSH and it's a fantastic test. It's very sensitive, very specific. And we, I, I really didn't have a need as uh, 
uh, for ordering T3 levels and T4 levels because you know you really could learn everything you wanted from from the TSH in most patients, not in all. However, um, the biotin has become like the go-to vitamin. And there, there may be some help with your hair and nails with it. So a lot of people are taking it to improve their hair and nails. It's uh, in almost every B complex now because it's B7. And what has been in multivitamins for years has been uh, maybe a few hundred micrograms of, uh, of biotin, which is never enough to interfere with lab assays. However, these supplements that people are taking have grams of biotin in it. And the problem is biotin is one of the reagents that is used in the assay machine that runs our labs. And it's not just my TSH that's a problem, it's everything. It's the troponins, it's the PTH, the PSA. Um, there's many, many of these labs that are run on these multi-channel machines that use biotin. And it's not consistent. So it depends upon what your assay is. Some of them, the levels are high, some of the levels are low. So most of the time with TSH, it gives you an inappropriately low TSH. Now, it's not anything that it's doing to the patient. It's just inaccuracies with the machine because it can't tell where this biotin is coming from. It's expecting it from its reagent and it's actually in the patient's serum. So I actually have all these signs hung in all of my clinic rooms that have pictures of biotin and to remind patients they need to stop it three days before they do their labs because it takes about three days to get it out of the system. And then they're fine and you know the levels will be, will be good. But when we get back these funny looking labs where the free T4 is perfectly normal and the TSH is very low and the patient feels perfectly fine, and then we start talking to them, oh yes, I was taking such and such vitamin and there's biotin in it. Mm. So, so I end up ordering a lot more free T4s trying to track down, well, what is yeah. wrong with this patient and their TSH? And indeed it was never a problem with the thyroid. It's just a lab yeah. assay issue. So very, very it's helpful. important for everyone to ask this because everybody's labs are having the same problem. Well, Thomas, let me talk to you about your other world, which is directing endocrinology and teaching and overseeing a residency program aspects. Obviously, we've all had a different um, uh, style forced upon us. Uh, endocrinology, as you said, you do rely on labs. We in GI feel like we have to touch something a bit more. But in general, how do you see the endocrinology patient relationship and maybe the teaching program being modified or changed over the next couple of years here as we adapt to the uh, uh, COVID world? I think teaching has been the hardest part of it. My patients actually have adapted very well. Yep. The patients are loving it because obviously in endocrine, we see a lot of diabetics. And if they don't have diabetes, they're old and have osteoporosis or I've got them on steroids because they're adrenally insufficient or whatever. So our population is a very high risk population for the COVID and giving them the opportunity to stay at home so that they don't have to get out and about uh, has been great for them. Uh, I'm hoping that obviously our insurance companies will continue to pay for some of these, these mm -hmm. home visits because particularly for some of these elderly patients, and I, I've been doing this for 25 years now, so I have a number of patients that are in their 80s or 90s, 
And my husband actually has quite a few in their hundreds, which I have one guy I think that's turning a hundred this year. I don't have any other ones that are uh, are in are in the hundreds. But um, you know, those people, it, it's so much nicer for them to be at home, and they don't have to have the family driving them. Many are in wheelchairs, and then just the the hassle of trying to get them to clinic. When really, I'm mostly doing doing labs on them. Right. Uh, I there's nothing I'm really examining uh, on many of these people uh, that we couldn't do with a once or twice a year visit. Particularly uh, with the with the thyroid, it's not going to change that much over the course of a year. And with I can't tell you how many of these platforms I have on my phone. Whatever it'll work with the patient, uh, I even you know. If they've got an Apple phone, you know, we'll just FaceTime sometimes because a lot of these platforms are very hard for these older patients to do. But, you know, most of them can FaceTime with their grandkids. So, you know, I'll just FaceTime them. Um, and you can see a lot, you know, you can really look at a thyroid. You can have them, if it's a diabetic, you can have them point that camera at their feet. We can really look. Do you have any lesions on your feet? Have you looked at your feet anytime recently? So we've been very lucky to be able to do a lot of stuff over the, the phone with the patients. And many of our diabetics do have continuous glucose monitors, which we can look at online now. Uh, they have insulin pumps. We've gotten a lot of them to actually learn how to download their own pumps, which we've struggled with for years, but they've never bothered to learn how to do it because we do it for them in clinic. So now they're actually uh, mm. learning their pumps much better. So there's been a lot of good things about that. I still think that your over the phone is a lot less personal. I, I think we we've lost a lot of the just, I don't know, the interpersonal relationship oh. with the patient when we're trying to do it over the phone, particularly if we can't get the video part going, because some of the patients just don't have either the capability to do it or they don't have the internet connection right. and they just can't do it. So I think we need to be in clinic as soon as we can get back in clinic just to have that better patient doctor relationship going. But I think it'd be nice to continue it so that at least in some of these patients, at, you know, once or twice a year, we can save them that trip to the doctor when it really isn't necessary, particularly if you've done some of these people have five different doctors they see. Right. If you've got a good primary care doc, am I really adding something to a guy's exam that just saw the patient a month ago? Probably right. not. So, so I think there's a lot of things that would, we can continue with the patient. With the residents and the students, I, I think we've lost a lot for those guys because trying to do this over the phone with them, I mean, they're, they're not getting that clinic experience with you. How do you examine the patient? How do you approach that thyroid exam and people that haven't you know, done a thyroid exam? How do you talk to this patient about losing weight that you know, nobody wants to work on their diet and exercise. And, you know, how do you convince people to do something they don't want to do? And, you know, you have to kind of learn your way around that. What's your approach to doing that? And if they never see us do it, it's, it's very hard for them. I think the lectures, you know, doing a noon lecture that many of the programs have, which is really just, here's a topic, I'm going to talk about it. Right. I, I think we do okay with those, but even those I, I don't feel like are as interesting. It's, it's very hard to sit on these Zoom things and uh, uh, have the same with the patient interaction. You don't have that interaction with the audience. So no, you it's, have to motivate it's not yourself. as fun. Yeah, no question, you've got to motivate yourself to be uh, excited and involved. Uh, when you give the talk. 
as well. Yeah, it's it's hard. You don't have that feedback, and you're you're trying to. Half of them don't have their cameras on, or probably more than half, because they're still in their jammies. You know, mm -hmm. if they're not doing something that day, uh, you know, particularly for the students, not so much the residents. Uh, right. You know, they're seeing patients with us and whatever, but the students frequently are home, and so they don't have the cameras on. So it's just a different uh, style of interaction that's that's not as right. not as fun for either side, I don't think. Well, Dr. Bright, all I can say on behalf of the audience, certainly myself, I've learned a lot extremely informative. Thank you for the time and thank you for the education. We very much appreciate it. It was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun and I hope it was informative for everyone. Certainly was. And so colleagues, um, this podcast will be officially available in the next 24 hours. Uh, please um, benefit from it and maybe connect up with some of the other podcasts we've done over the last 12 months. And so I'll say adios for now and look forward to another podcast in February. Good afternoon again. A sincere thanks to Dr. Bride for an outstanding um, discussion. Bye-bye.